If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and the ushers will get one to you. You know, I recently heard that sabbaticals are a wonderful thing. They're a great time for a pastor to get away and to learn about himself and to learn about God, to find out about your strengths and your weaknesses. And Since I didn't want Pastor Jason to have all the fun, I, I thought I'd do the same thing he did a few weeks back. You see, Pastor Jason was gone for a couple months on sabbatical, but he wasn't the only one who was learning things. So what I like to call this message is Confessions of a Solo Pastor, What I Learned, What I Learned During Jason's Sabbatical. A couple caveats. First of all, um, I, don't, I hope I didn't learn these things for the first time. Technically, I think that these are things that I'm relearning or being reminded. And then finally, since I don't want this just to be about me and, and the little that I know or I'm learning about it, I want to root these reminders in God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I just want to give us a little context. You know, we're dive-bombing into the middle of a book, and I think it's important for us to to uh, set the stage of what's happening. As you can tell by the name of the book, Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. And the aim of it is to show the superiority of Jesus over the law, which makes sense considering the audience. And remember, the, code of the, the law is basically a code of conduct for the Hebrews. It was established through a covenant, and it's really a way for them to know how to relate to each other, relate to the world around them, and most importantly, how to relate to God. But, as we all know, that, that proved impossible to maintain, which brings us back to the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 10. In chapter 10, we're going to see this is a mark in the book. It's sort of a turning point where the author has spent the, the first part of the book really explaining who Jesus is and what he's done and really making a case for why Jesus is superior to the law. But in chapter 10, he begins to show us how the superiority of Jesus, how it applies to us in our lives. So we're moving from explanation to application. And really, the chap chapter itself is a microcosm of the book. It begins with another discussion of the superiority of Jesus in chapters, uh, verses 1 to 18. And it ends with a serious warning and an admonition for us to stay with Christ in, in verses 26 to 39. But sandwiched right in the middle is an exhortation for the Hebrews in their present day. And this is where I want us to spend our time. So look at verse 19. We're going to start in 19 and go to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, as he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting um, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. We're talking about their and our present life, but I want you to notice how it begins. It begins where every Christian life should begin. It is rooted in Jesus. Look at verse 19 and 20. We have confidence now to enter the holy place. And enter the holy place, as the Hebrews would understand, that simply means to come into God's presence. We have the confidence to come into God's presence, and we're coming in by a new and living way. And again, he's using terms that they understand. 
as I mentioned, this holy place is, is simply referring to God's presence. They knew what that meant. This was a very important place in the temple, the holy place. In fact, the most holy place was off limits to everyone except for the high priest. And he was able to go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he went in after much ritual cleansing. And he went in at the risk of his own death. But you know what? That all changed with Jesus. And the Hebrews, and now we have confidence to enter into God's presence because of what Jesus has done. When he died on the cross, he provided all who believe access to God. The law provided a limited one-at-a-time access to God's presence, but Jesus has provided for us all the opportunity to experience God's presence for all time. And to back this up, look what, look what the writer talks about. Look at, the, look at the passage. As every good Jewish person at the time would have known, the curtain he was referring to was in the place between the holy place and the most holy of holies. This thing was huge. It was it was 30 feet wide by 60 feet tall. It was this huge elaborate woven thing. And no one was able to enter that holy place um, behind the curtain, again except for the high priest once a year. And the reason was is because that's where God's presence rested. It's important to understand that no person could have direct access to the perfect and holy God of the universe and live. But remember when Jesus died? Do you remember what happened? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all, all testify that that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. Isn't that an incredible image of what Jesus has done for us? That we now have access to God because of what he has done. So Jesus in his perfect and obedient life and death, he removed the separation from God and man. We are now granted access to God. Now, we say that. Sometimes I get a little concerned because we say we've been granted access to God. And we just let those words slip on by. We've been granted access to God. We who are enemies and dead and far off can now be his children. Behold what manner of love it is that now we can be called the sons of God. Let's not take that for granted. But just to make sure this sinks in, the author stresses one more time how we enter. Look at verse 19. How do we enter into this, this access? We enter by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, a new way has been opened to us by his flesh. It is only through Jesus that we are granted access to God. It is only through Jesus that now we can come to the presence of the living God and live. But not only do we get access, but look what else we get. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. You see, Jesus is our great high priest. And again, the Hebrews would have understood what this meant. The high priest was the one who represented them before God. He was the one who enters God's presence and advocates for his people. But we don't just have any high priest. We have the great high priest. The author of Hebrews explains this in detail in chapter 7, starting in verse 23, and it says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
The Apostle John picks this up in 1 John 2, 1, and when he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Apostle Paul picks it up too in Romans 8, 34b, where he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Folks, Jesus Christ is alive today. And he's in the presence of God. And you know what he's doing? He's advocating and interceding for me and for you. He is the way to God. He was the sacrifice, the lamb who was slain once and for all to provide us with this. He is the one who sustains our relationship. He is interceding for you and me right now. We have an advocate. I want to pause right there again. We can let the idea that we have access to God just roll off our tongue and roll, rattle around our heads and let it, let it escape us. Think about this. The one who granted us access, the one who fulfilled all the law, the one who was the sacrifice, who is now the priest, he is advocating for us. I don't think we live in that reality enough. We forget that simple but all-important truth. But in light of this, in light of who Jesus is, and in light of what he has done for us and what he is doing, we have our first exhortation. Look at chapter, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Hebrews' first responsibility, in light of what God has done, is the same responsibility that we have. We're to draw near to God. And again, the, the Hebrews would have understand drawing near means simply coming into his presence. We are going to God. Well, how do we come? What's the manner in which we come? Well, we come with a true and sincere heart. You see that? We come with a true heart. We come committed to the person of Jesus. We're committed to who Christ is. We want to live for him. We don't want to have mixed motives. Really what we're doing is we're coming with a pure and sincere love for God. So we come loving the person. But look what else we come. Look how else we come. We come with full assurance of faith. We come committed to the truth. What Jesus has done. We want to live by what he says. We don't want there to be confusion about the truth. We don't, there's no attempt on our part to distort the truth. We are coming to God and resting, with, resting in him with a clear understanding of what he has done on our behalf. So see how we come? When we understand that Jesus Christ has given us access, when we understand that Jesus Christ is advocating for us for all eternity, we come with simple love for him and simple trust in what he has done for us. That's how we come. And again, he just highlights the means. We come with our hearts sprinkled clean and our, our bodies washed with pure water. This is the, the, the Hebrews would have understood this as referring to the purification rites. But all of those were, were taken up and all of those were fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus has sprinkled us clean. I just want to make sure we understand our job and our faith is not to make ourselves clean. Is not to earn merit or favor with God. Our job is to draw near to him with a sincere love. 
is to draw near to him with a complete faith, with complete trust, and to rest in who he is and what he has done. My prayer is that somehow we can get that into our lives, and that won't simply be something we talk about on Sunday morning, but it will move from our heads, it will go to our hearts and hands, that we can live that way. Which leads me to lesson number one I learned on Jason's sabbatical. We need to revel in God's grace. We need to revel in God's grace. I must confess that this is a lesson that I continue to learn, but, but the sabbatical helped bring it into focus. You know, as usual, I was working for God. Jason was gone. There was a church to run. There was people to meet. There were meetings to convene. There was, and there always will be, a lot to do. But you know, working for someone and reveling who that person is and what they've done for you are two entirely different things. Entirely different things. And I'm again reminded that God doesn't need my effort. He wants my heart. But if I'm honest, and I think I should be, I always think that's a funny phrase. Why would I say that? I fell into my usual trap. Tell me if this pattern sounds familiar to any of you, okay? So I get busy, and I stop drawing near to God. That is, I stop loving him and having faith in his finished work, or that begins to diminish in my life, and, and I start to work from God apart from relating with him, okay? And that moves me to work as I feel distant from God. I start trying to earn merit and favor. I start trying to earn my way back to him because I feel distant from him. And then when I'm left completely exhausted, you know what I find? I find that my mind drifts towards things that I think will help me um, revel in, that will help me find joy. And we know what that's called. That's idolatry. Does that pattern sound familiar? You know what? I'm tired. I'm tired of that pattern in my life. I want to be a great reveler. I want to wake up every morning and I want to do a cannonball into God's giant pool of grace. And I want to live there. I want to live as a free man. I want to live as a new man with a new identity. I want to love Jesus Christ. And I want to trust his work alone. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to start in the morning. That's what I want to take me through the day. That's where I want to go at night and have be my last thought. But you know, folks, it's not easy. We all know it's not easy. There are plenty of ways that we sabotage um, our ability to revel in grace. Go back to that pattern I was talking about. You know, I mentioned it. Remember it? Busyness, religiosity, idolatry. I think this pattern offers a great blueprint for, for us to test our ability to freely revel in God's grace. First, we have the busyness check. I think busyness is one of the easiest ways to rob ourselves of relationship, even with God. Now, I'm not talking about having a lot to do. We all have a lot to do. But by busyness, I mean that the focus of our lives becomes accomplishing tasks at the cost of relationship. I love what Eugene Peterson says about why we're busy. He says we're busy for two main reasons. First, he says we're busy because we're proud. We want people to see our schedules and realize that we're important. Second, we're busy because we're lazy. We let people set our agendas. 
Either way, both pride and laziness reveal that our focus is on pleasing people, trying to, to impress them or, or trying to appease them. And living a life driven by fear of man and focused on the accomplishment of the task, this is a surefire way to decrease your ability to draw near to God and to revel in his grace. Where are you at in the busyness scale? What about religiosity? By its very definition, religion is man's attempt to know and to reach God. What are religious persons trying to do? They're trying to earn merit or favor to be able to get to God. Are you trying to reach up to God by making yourself worthy? Are you trying to save yourself? You see, you can't be focused on earning your way to God while celebrating the free gift you've received in Jesus. It just doesn't work. And finally, the idolatry check. Is there anything in your life that you find to be more exciting and more wonderful and more beautiful than God? Is there anything that you are trusting more than him? Where are you at? Are you reveling in his goodness and his grace? Or are you robbing yourself of the ability to, to revel in this grace? Remember, Jesus Christ has done everything for us. He has given us access to God. He is our perfect and eternal advocate. And folks, our job is simple and it's clear. We're to run into his presence by loving him for who he is and trusting him for what he's done. You know, we focused on what can rob us from the ability to revel, but, but how do we develop this, this ability? And, and small group leaders, I want, I want to pose two questions that I think would be good for you to ask in your small groups. How are you cultivating a love for the person of God? How are you falling more in love with Jesus? What are you doing to fall more in love with him? And then the second question is, how are you cultivating hope and trust in the works of God, how are you trusting Jesus above all else? How are you trusting Jesus more than your pocketbook? How are you trusting Jesus more than your job? How are you trusting Jesus more than your youth? We need to revel in his grace. And it's a privilege to do. And it's a discipline. But it's where I want to live, and I hope that you want to live there too. That was lesson number one. We begin lesson number two in the next verse in Hebrews 23. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now you need to understand the tough times that the people in this chapter uh, were having when they received this letter. In chapter 13, a few chapters um, later, they're encouraged to remember those who are in prison and who are mistreated. If you want a more vivid picture of the tough times they're having, look at verses 32 to 34 in this chapter, in chapter 10. What are they reminded of? They're reminded that they are reminded that they were publicly exposed to reproach and to affliction. And even more, this is amazing, even more they were commended for having, get this, joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. So you get the picture. It's not good. It's not good. But in light of these crazy circumstances, what are they told to do? They're told to hold fast 
They're told to hold on. Now, in the New Testament, this idea of holding fast really has two, a twofold meaning. On one hand, it means to keep believing, okay? On the other hand, it means to stay true to what you believe. So holding fast is all-encompassing. It means we hold on to what we believe, and we hold on, we keep living like we believe. It encompasses our attitude and our actions. We need to hold on. How could they do this? What was given, given to them to help them hold fast? Look at the rest of the verse. For he who promised is faithful. The reason they can hold fast, the object of their hope, is God himself. Who he is and what he's done. Last month, my four-year-old daughter decided that she was going to ride her bike. And so she got on and she started riding. And parents, I am convinced that chiropractors are in existence simply because parents are trying to teach their children how to ride a bike. If you ever want to be a millionaire, learn how to create a device that uh, you can push them from a distance. But as I'm running along with her, I'm running along with her, she's nervous and she's scared. If you know if you guys know Evangeline, she's nervous and she's scared and she's talking. She's talking, you guys know. And I'm running alongside her, I'm running right alongside her, and what am I saying? Don't worry, keep going, I've got you. Don't worry, keep going, I've got you. Now I think, and I really hope, that the bulk of my encouragement comes from that little phrase, I've got you. I've got you. Because when I say that, you know what Evangeline's doing? She's resting in my character. She knows who I am, she knows I'm her father. She knows that I'm strong enough to carry her. And, and she knows that I love her and that I won't let anything too bad happen to her. And she doesn't keep going because anyone has her. She keeps going because he tr she trusts her dad. And she knows that I am with her. And I think this is what this verse is talking about. I think this is what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's telling us we can keep going because he is he, because God is God. We can keep going because God is God. Over the last few months, I've had the privilege of sitting with you and praying with you and laughing with you and shedding tears with you. And I've watched you hold on through disease. I've watched you hold on through injury. I've watched you hold on through all sorts of craziness through pain and loss and confusion. And I watch you hold on, and sometimes I see you clawing to stay, and you're just barely making it, and you're looking at me, and you're asking the question every pastor dreads, why? And all I can do is look back and say, I don't know. I don't. I don't know why it's happening. I don't know how long it's going to last. And I'm not even going to try and pretend that I have the answer. But here's what I relearned on Jason's sabbatical. I relearned that the only thing that you or I can offer each other in those moments is this. God has not changed. God has not 
changed. He is still sovereign. He is still good. He has brought you to this point. And he is going to complete his good work in you. He has given you the gift of new and eternal life. You are in his hands. God is here with you now. God will always say, I've got you. I've got you. And I know that's where some of you are right now. I know that. I know that's where you're at. And again, I don't know what to say. But I want to point you to God. And being a practical pastor, I have a couple resources for you. The first one, these are all going to be out on the information table. The first one is the attributes of God and their application to our lives. You think, I, I think it's important. I think one of the best ways for us to hold on to our faith is to revisit the character of the one who we put our faith. And the second handout simply says who I am in Christ. I think another great, great way to remember God's faithful work on our behalf is to consider who we are because of what he's done. So if you're holding on right now, if you're holding on, I encourage you to pick those up, read through those, pray with them, pray through them, talk to somebody about them. Again, they'll be available in the front lobby at the information table after the service. So remember, Jesus has provided us access to God. Jesus is our eternal advocate who keeps us with God. And our call is simple. We're called to faith. We're called to faith. We're to run to him and revel in his grace. We're called to love him for who he is and trust him for what he has done. But we're also called to hope. We're called to hold on to our faith because God is God. But we're called to one more thing. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We've been talking about how we're to relate to God. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. We're start talking about how we relate to others. And what are we to do? I love that the first word here for us, the first command here for us, the first part of this exhortation, excuse me, is to consider. That's a great word. To consider it means, it, it means that we are to notice, that we're to pay attention, that we're to look closely at. There's something that we must rivet our attention on. We need to consider something. And what's the object of our attention in this passage? Other people. Folks, this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus, living with other people in mind. Paul beautifully sums up this way of Jesus in Philippians 2, verse 3, where he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. I think that offers, offers a great definition of what considering means. To consider another means that we intentionally give that person more significance in our lives. And we intentionally put their interest above our own. We must view their being as more valuable. We must view their interests as more important. But the Hebrews and ourselves, we're not just being called to some general consideration 
What are we being called to consider? We're being called to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We're called to stir each other up. This is not, this is not a nice word. It's not a nice word. It's used in the, in the New Testament one other time, and it's talking about a sharp disagreement. It's talking about a fight between Paul and Barnabas. In other places, um, it's used, it's translated as sudden convulsion, violent emotion, to spur, to prod, and my favorite, to incite to riot. There's a picture for you. Hey, Chris, can you incite everybody to riot or have a riot of love and good works right now? Small group leaders, there's an exercise for you. We are called to spur one another on. We're to positively irritate each other to love and good works. And and you see the goal? It's both an attitude. We're we're to call each other out on our attitudes. We're to call each other to love. But we're to call each other out on our actions. We're, We're called to good works. Nothing gets by. We are to bug each other into caring for others. We're to prod each other in actually doing something about that care. What would it look like? What would it look like if we did that? What would it look like if we fought for each other's holiness at that level? If we were into each other's lives that much and we didn't worry about relation, we weren't concerned about how other people were going to think, and we were, we were doing that. I'm telling you, Evanston would be different. Now, we see in the text that they can't do this if they're not meeting together, which leads us to uh, the final verse here. Uh, Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. I, I think this is pretty straightforward. You can't be a prodding encourager if you're not with the people. So the author is saying, meet together. Be together so that you're able to do this. I think that's pretty straightforward, which leads... Me to lesson number three. Very obvious, but I think very important. Lesson number three, we need each other. We need each other. This is the way that Jesus has designed the church to work. Now, I'd like to, I'd like to give you two observations about what I've been relearning or being reminded over Jason's sabbatical. The first one's personal, the next one is professional. The first one, personally, Over Jason's sabbatical, I became more and more convinced of my need for community. Um, Being a a solo pastor is lonely. It's it's not good. There's a lot of reasons for that. I don't want to be alone. I don't like it, and it's very bad for me. So I did something about it. Let me tell you what my week looks like. Sunday night's a small group. Monday nights, I have a 15-minute phone call with my college roommates to uh, discuss um, our health and our families. Tuesday nights, I meet with the elders. Every other Wednesday morning, I have a standing phone call with an old friend and colleague to um, hold each other accountable about purity and about how we are leading our families. Every other Thursday morning, I meet with a group of pastors for counsel and accountability. And every other Friday, I meet with the pastoral interns with the specific purpose of sharing our lives and praying for each other. It's pretty crazy, huh? And you're saying, okay, John, you're the pastor. 
That's your job, right? That's what you're supposed to be, and that's your job. That's not for all of us. No. I don't do this because I'm a pastor. I do this because I'm a sinner. I know my heart, and I know the tendency of my heart to, to cultivate sin when I'm alone. I need people in my life. I need people who are going to come in who are going to kick me in the tail, who are going to spur me on, and who are going to know me and still love me. And love me enough to do those hard things. And I know this pattern in my life, and I see it in others all the time. I feel alone. I withdraw. And then I fall into sin. So I don't go near community. And pretty soon, I'm standing in a room full of people, and I feel completely alone. That's the tyranny of sin. Sin separates. It divides. It puts up walls. Why in the world would any of us want to intentionally separate ourselves from each other? Why? I do it because I'm a sinner, and I'm pretty sure that most of us in this room are sinners. We need each other. I need you. I need you to speak truth into my life. I need prodding. I need an irritating encouragers walking with me. You know, what's interesting. There's a reason that Jesus describes his spiritual enemies as wolves. There's a reason that the Apostle Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Like any predator, our enemy will always prey on the weakest and most vulnerable. And I just want to say, as a Christian, we are always at our weakest and we are always at our most vulnerable when we are alone. I've heard all the excuses. I've made the excuses. I don't like these people. I don't know if they like me. I can't relate to them. They're too cool. Maybe that's what I say. Maybe you guys don't say that. They make me feel uncomfortable. They smell funny. Who knows? We are so good at making excuses. But I want to say this, and I want you to hear this clearly. When you intentionally and regularly isolate yourself from other Christians, you are in grave spiritual danger. I say that as a pastor. Don't, don't, don't separate yourselves. This is who the Lord has, has put in our family. All we're doing is practicing for eternity. We're going to be with each other forever. Don't do it. We need each other. Let me make one more professional observation. Something happened over Jason's sabbatical that, that happens all the time. Um, one of the things that uh, we find out Monday mornings is how many people are here. I don't know if you guys know about the numbers, but they're crazy. We can have 350 one week and 215 the next week. Where do you people go? <laughs> what, are you, what, what are you doing? I don't understand it. And the funny thing is, 
you, we know that 50 people are missing, but then the next week there'll be more people. And who are those people, and where are they coming from? It, it's amazing. I think if we put our schedule up against any churches in America, we would have a, a, a full, the fuller schedule. I, I think that's the truth. Um, it's amazing. Um, and so, one of the things that sometimes concerns me, and please know, please know, I am not calling anybody out here. I have nobody in mind when I say this, but sometimes I get concerned. Sometimes I get concerned in the midst of our crazy lives that, that some of us may be relegating church to Sunday mornings between 10 and 11.30. And I think it's exactly this view of church that the writer of Hebrews is addressing about neglecting to meet. Now listen, I am not saying that Sunday mornings don't count. I'm not giving you a free pass. It's not what I'm saying. It is good and right to gather together as, as the body of Christ to sit under the teaching of, of God's word. It is good to pray together. It is good to worship in song as one body. And then for all of you overachievers here, because I know we have a room full, I want you to know that this does not mean that you need to attend every single event in the calendar or you'll be in sin. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? What I am saying is that if Sunday mornings is all you do for church, you might be in danger of neglecting to meet, as is the habit of some. Think about it. Church was never meant to be a one-time event during the week. The church is described most often in, in the New Testament in two primary ways. It's a body or it's a building. Now, your body doesn't just come together on Sundays and then just sort of a morph somewhere for the rest of the week. This building doesn't say, okay, it's Saturday night, we need to get together. It, it just doesn't make sense. Now, the point here is that we don't always have to be with each other, but the point is that we are made to connect with each other. Now, we can connect in some real basic ways on Sunday mornings. I'm not saying we can. I've connected with several of you already this morning, and some of you are better at it than others. You know, Jerry Klinkner is the great connector of our church. Some of you guys, you know, we do it well. But I don't know if we can really connect the way the writer of Hebrews is saying as we're supposed to meet together. I, I would argue that we can't really connect in deep, meaningful ways that the Bible lays out. Think about it. I think the best way to stir one another up to love and good works is to use the biblical categories of one another's from the New Testament. You know, I have an incomplete list of them here, the one another's of the New Testament. I'd like to read through them real quick. We're, we're called to bear one another's burdens. We're called to bear with one another, to build one another up, to care for one another, to comfort one another, to serve one another, to confess our sins to one another, to show hospitality to one another, to receive and welcome one another, to be devoted to one another, to minister to one another, to encourage one another, forgive one another, greet one another, be honest with one another, honor each other, be hospitable, meet with one another, be kind to one another, love one another. You get the picture. When I look at that list, I'm really convinced that most of these are best done in smaller groups that we need to be meeting together and we need to be touching, touching base with each other. So, so here's what I'm saying. Keep coming Sunday mornings, but make sure you have a place where you can know others and be known by others. 
It takes time and effort to learn how to be an effective, encouraging irritant for one another. So here's my assignment. If you are not in a small group or not in a Bible study, we have all sorts of different things you can do. Look in the bulletin. Get involved. It's easy. We want you to be part of our community. We need you. We need you to be part of our community. And then if you're currently involved in a group, I want to challenge you to take some risks. Maybe to allow others to bear your burdens. Maybe to confess sins to one one another. Often I see it just takes one person stepping out in faith to get an entire group on a journey of really and truly stirring one another up to love and good works. And finally, for small group leaders and Bible study leaders, I I think this is a great checkup for you to consider your stirring up uh, grade. This is on the information table as well. Go through these and ask your group, how are we doing on these? I think this is the way that we are called to stir one another up. That's a very helpful exercise. So to recap, while Jason was on sabbatical, I relearned that we need to revel in God's grace more. I relearned that we can hold on because God is God. And I relearned that that we need each other in this fight. Now as we transition to the Lord's table, I can't think of any better way to conclude. What better place to run to God and revel in his grace than at the communion table? There's no better way to hold on and to hold fast than to remember what Jesus did on the cross for our behalf. And we get to do it together. Let's pray. As we look to you, Jesus, give us faith and we always revel in your sovereign grace. And in the face of our circumstances, give us hope that we hold fast to you because you are faithful. And as we face today and look to the day when you return, help us to love. May we always consider each other and stir one another up to love in good works. In Jesus' name, amen.